June 23, 1972, the White House. President Nixon meets with his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman. The topic, Watergate. That's part of the infamous smoking gun tape. The discussion went on for more than five minutes, and although the recording is difficult to understand, it clearly contradicted the president's earlier claims about his involvement in the Watergate cover-up. In 1983, he talked to his former White House special assistant, Frank Gannon, about how he told his family about the recording and his decision to resign. We all met in the Lincoln sitting room, as I recall. Uh, She came down with uh, uh, Tricia. Julie, uh, Eddie Cox, and David. And uh, I had the 23rd tape transcript brought over because I thought that uh, it was important that they see just what the problems were because that was causing concern. Let me say, had there not been the 23rd tape transcript, we would have still had to resign due to the fact that before that transcript ever was made public, as we know, the three Democrats had been lost on the committee. But nevertheless, this was the final blow, the final nail in the coffin although you don't need another nail if you're already in the coffin, which we were. The president's family was against his decision to resign. First Lady Pat Nixon was particularly opposed to it. She was very quiet about it, uh, listening to the others, which she usually does. Uh, But she came down very emphatically uh, against resigning. I mean, we have to remember that uh, during the fun crisis, I was the one that felt that, well, I ought to give my resignation to Eisenhower. And she said, you can't do it. You can't do it because of his effects on the children. You can't do it because Eisenhower lose the election. He says these people are just dumb who think uh, that if he does this to you, that they're going to be able to survive uh, and get your supporters to support them in the final campaign. And on this occasion, uh, she was a fighter to the last. She was the last to give up. She was the last to give up in the fun thing, the last to give up in 1960, and she was the last to give up this time. Very hard for her. Coming up, the president loses his fight to keep the Nixon tapes from going public, and his presidency comes to an end. When the calendar turned to 1974, Richard Nixon had already spent months doing everything he could to keep his White House recordings out of the hands of Congress and the media. With the Senate Watergate Committee's work wrapped up and the White House recording system turned off, both the House and Senate Judiciary Committees ramped up their efforts to get a hold of the president's tapes. Even the president's own special prosecutor wanted them. But President Nixon claimed executive privilege and refused to turn anything over. By spring, events began to overtake the White House, and the president's game of keep-away was about to end. In March, a federal grand jury handed down indictments against seven of the president's closest advisors, including John Mitchell, H.R. Haldeman, and John Ehrlichman. They also named President Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. On April 29th, the president relented. Sort of. Good evening. I have asked for this time tonight in order to announce my answer to the House Judiciary Committee's subpoena for additional Watergate tapes and to tell you something about the actions I shall be taking tomorrow, about what I hope they will mean to you, and about the very difficult choices that were presented to me. These actions will at last, once and for all, show that what I knew and what I did with regard to the Watergate break-in and cover-up were just as I have described them to you from the very beginning. I spent many hours during the past few weeks thinking about what I would say 
for the American people if I were to reach the decision I shall announce tonight. And so my words have not been lightly chosen. I can assure you they are deeply felt. It was almost two years ago, in June 1972, that five men broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington. It turned out that they were connected with my re-election committee and the Watergate break-in became a major issue in the campaign. The full resources of the FBI and the Justice Department were used to investigate the incident thoroughly. I instructed my staff and campaign aides to cooperate fully with the investigation. The FBI conducted nearly 1,500 interviews. For nine months, until March 1973, I was assured by those charged with conducting and monitoring the investigations that no one in the White House was involved. Nevertheless, for more than a year, there have been allegations, insinuations, that I knew about the planning of the Watergate break-in and that I was involved in an extensive plot to cover it up. The House Judiciary Committee is now investigating these charges. On March 6th, I ordered all materials that I had previously furnished to the special prosecutor turned over to the committee. These included tape recordings of 19 presidential conversations and more than 700 documents from private White House files. On April 11, the Judiciary Committee issued a subpoena for 42 additional tapes of conversations which it contended were necessary for its investigation. I agreed to respond to that subpoena by tomorrow. In these folders that you see over here on my left are more than 1,200 pages of transcripts of private conversations I participated in between September 15, 1972 and April 27 of 1973 with my principal aides and associates with regard to Watergate. They include all the relevant portions of all of the subpoenaed conversations that were recorded. That is, all portions that relate to the question of what I knew about Watergate or the cover-up and what I did about it. They also include transcripts of other conversations which were not subpoenaed, but which have a significant bearing on the question of presidential actions with regard to Watergate. These will be delivered to the committee tomorrow. In these transcripts, portions not relevant to my knowledge or actions with regard to Watergate are not included. But everything that is relevant is included. The rough as well as the smooth. The strategy sessions, the exploration of alternatives, the weighing of human and political costs. As far as what the president personally knew and did with regard to Watergate and the cover-up is concerned, these materials together with those already made available, will tell it all. I shall invite Chairman Rodino and the committee's ranking minority member, Congressman Hutchinson of Michigan, to come to the White House and listen to the actual full tapes of these conversations so that they can determine for themselves beyond question that the transcripts are accurate and that everything on the tapes relevant to my knowledge and my actions on Watergate is included. If there should be any disagreement over whether omitted material is relevant, I shall meet with them personally 
in an effort to settle the matter. I believe this arrangement is fair, and I think it's appropriate. For many days now, I have spent many hours of my own time personally reviewing these materials and personally deciding questions of relevancy. I believe it is appropriate that the committee's review should also be made by its own senior elected officials and not by staff employees. The task of Chairman Rodino and Congressman Hutchinson will be made simpler than was mine by the fact that the work of preparing the transcripts has been completed. All they will need to do is to satisfy themselves of their authenticity and their completeness. Ever since the existence of the White House taping system was first made known last summer, I have tried vigorously to guard the privacy of the tapes. I've been well aware that my effort to protect the confidentiality of presidential conversations has heightened the sense of mystery about Watergate and, in fact, has caused increased suspicions of the president. Many people assume that the tapes must incriminate the president or that otherwise he wouldn't insist on their privacy. But the problem I confronted was this. Unless a president can protect the privacy of the advice he gets, he cannot get the advice he needs. This principle is recognized in the constitutional doctrine of executive privilege, which has been defended and maintained by every president since Washington and which has been recognized by the courts whenever tested as inherent in the presidency. I consider it to be my constitutional responsibility to defend this principle. Three factors have now combined to persuade me that a major unprecedented exception to that principle is now necessary. First, in the present circumstances, the House of Representatives must be able to reach an informed judgment about the President's role in Watergate. Second, I am making a major exception to the principle of confidentiality because I believe such action is now necessary in order to restore the principle itself by clearing the air of the central question that has brought such pressures upon it and also to provide the evidence which will allow this matter to be brought to a prompt conclusion. Third, in the context of the current impeachment climate, I believe all the American people, as well as their representatives in Congress, are entitled to have not only the facts, but also the evidence that demonstrates those facts. I want there to be no question remaining about the fact that the president has nothing to hide in this matter. It was too little too late for the House Judiciary Committee. Less than two weeks later, they started impeachment proceedings. On July 24th, a unanimous Supreme Court ruled the president's claim of executive privilege didn't hold up. They ordered him to surrender dozens of original White House recordings. On July 27th, the House Judiciary Committee approved three articles of impeachment, obstruction of justice, misuse of power, and contempt of Congress. Nine days later, on August 5th, the White House released three recording transcripts. Here's how CBS News reported it. The president made public three transcripts of meetings with his former chief aide, H.R. Bob Haldeman, all June 23, 1972. This was six days after the Watergate break-in, 
Three days after an earlier discussion of Watergate with Haldeman, the tape of which has been mysteriously erased, and one week before John Mitchell was dismissed as presidential campaign manager. This is the first time that contents of these June 23, 1972 tape recordings have been made known outside of the White House. With the new transcripts, the president issued a written statement of his own. In it, he acknowledges that what the transcripts say is, as Mr. Nixon puts it, at variance with what he told the American people on other occasions. In this regard, the president acknowledges that he has known this since last May. Thus, he acknowledges that he has known for three months what his own lawyers, his defenders in Congress, and the American people didn't know. Mr. Nixon apologizes for this, expresses deep regret that it happened, says he did not intend for it to happen. Whether this new revised presidential statement becomes the so-called smoking pistol, proving clear-cut guilt, or merely, as the president put it today, a potential problem, Mr. Nixon, in effect, leaves to the United States Senate to decide. For in his new statement, the president concedes that he will be impeached, probably, by the House of Representatives and tried by the Senate. Correspondent Fred Graham will have precise examples of the differences between what the president said before and what the new transcripts show later in this broadcast. In his personal statement accompanying the new transcripts today, the president says, quote, I recognize that this additional material I am now furnishing may further damage my case, especially because attention will be drawn separately to it rather than to the evidence in its entirety. The president ends his written statement by saying, again, direct quote, I am firmly convinced that the record in its entirety does not justify the extreme step of impeachment and removal of the president. I trust that as the constitutional process goes forward, this perspective will prevail. End of quotation. CBS News was told tonight by two sources who declined to be identified that Chief of White House Staff Alexander Haig has been talking directly with Mississippi's Senator James Eastland and that Eastland had told Haig that prospects for the president's case in the Senate just now do not look good. The White House indicated that this story was not true in its entirety. Eastland, contacted by CBS News, said, I never told Haig anything approaching that. Dan Rather, CBS News, the White House. Reaction on Capitol Hill to the president's statement that he had withheld information from the Congress was quick and angry. Bruce Morton reports. Uh, I really am not prepared at this moment to make any comment at all. Are you considering resigning the because president's lawyers, James St. Clair and J. Fred Buzzart, brought the news first to the House and then the Senate. No commenting reporters' questions, saving their explanations for meetings with what had been the president's hardcore defenders. But the hardcore turned hot and angry as molten steel. Three who fought for the president on the Judiciary Committee, for instance. Charles Wiggins of California. The president personally agreed to certain acts, the purpose and intent of which were to interfere with the FBI investigation of the Watergate break-in. These facts standing alone, Wiggins said, are legally sufficient, in my opinion, to sustain at least one count against the president of conspiracy to obstruct justice. I have reached the painful conclusion that the president of the United States should resign. Failing that, the president's career must be terminated involuntarily. Delbert Latta of Ohio. We're going to have to do some rethinking. This was evidence that was withheld from us. This is part of an obstruction of justice. Charles Sandman of New Jersey. It certainly changes my vote. This is devastating. A key undecided Republican, Barbara Conable of New York. Uh, it's tough to put your loyalty in, in someone who abuses it. And I think that's the way many Republicans are going to feel. Early, Senate Republican Whip Griffin of Michigan suggested the president resign. Where both the national interest and his own interest 
will best be served by resigning. It's not just his enemies who feel that way. Many of his best friends, and I consider myself one of them, believe now that this would be the most appropriate course. Needless to say, this would be a, an awesome, very difficult decision for him to reach. But I believe that he will see it that way too. After learning of the conversations released today, Griffin said he was disappointed that the president's decision to stay seems irrevocable. The impact of today's events will take time to measure, but it seems clear already that President Nixon's fight to avoid impeachment in the House is dead, and his chances to survive a Senate trial are increasingly uncertain. Bruce Morton, CBS News, Washington. Three days after that, history was made. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion, that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served. And there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication 
would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. As I recall the high hopes for America with which we began this second term, I feel a great sadness that I will not be here in this office working on your behalf to achieve those hopes in the next two and a half years. But in turning over direction of the government to Vice President Ford, I know, as I told the nation when I nominated him for that office 10 months ago, that the leadership of America will be in good hands. In passing this office to the Vice President, I also do so with a profound sense of the weight of responsibility that will fall on his shoulders tomorrow, and therefore of the understanding, the patience, the cooperation he will need from all Americans. As he assumes that responsibility, he will deserve the help and the support of all of us. As we look to the future, the first essential is to begin healing the wounds of this nation, to put the bitterness and divisions of the recent past behind us, and to rediscover those shared ideals that lie at the heart of our strength and unity as a great and as a free people. By taking this action, I hope that I will have hastened the start of that process of healing which is so desperately needed in America. I regret deeply any injuries that may have been done in the course of the events that led to this decision. I would say only that if some of my judgments were wrong, and some were wrong, they were made in what I believed at the time to be the best interest of the nation. To those who have stood with me during these past difficult months, to my family, my friends, to many others who joined in supporting my cause because they believed it was right, I will be eternally grateful for your support. And to those who have not felt able to give me your support, let me say, I leave with no bitterness toward those who have opposed me. Because all of us in the final analysis have been concerned with the good of the country, however our judgments might differ. So let us all now join together in affirming that common commitment and in helping our new president succeed for the benefit of all Americans. I shall leave this office with regret at not completing my term, but with gratitude for the privilege of serving as your president for the past five and a half years.
These years have been a momentous time in the history of our nation and the world. They have been a time of achievement in which we can all be proud. Achievements that represent the shared efforts of the administration, the Congress, and the people. But the challenges ahead are equally great. Minutes later, Vice President Gerald Ford talked to reporters outside his home in Alexandria, Virginia. Ladies and gentlemen, the Vice President will be making a brief statement. At the conclusion of that statement, he will not be taking any questions. Ladies and gentlemen, the Vice President of the United States. I think that um, this is one of the most difficult and very saddest periods and one of the very saddest incidents that I've ever witnessed. Let me say that uh, I think the President of the United States has made one of the greatest personal sacrifices for the country and one of the finest personal decisions on behalf of all of us as Americans by his decision to resign as President of the United States. It's been my opportunity to watch over a period of nearly 25 years a foreign policy in the last five years that has been most successful in the achievement of peace for all of us here and hopefully the rest of the world. It's been a policy that I think can continue peace in the months and years ahead. Let me say without any hesitation or reservation that the policy that has achieved peace and built the blocks for future peace will be continued as far as I'm concerned as President of the United States. We've been fortunate uh, in the last five years to have uh, a very great uh, man in Henry Kissinger who has helped to build the blocks of peace under President Nixon. I think those policies should be continued. And those policies of peace will be continued. I have asked uh, Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State to stay on and to be the Secretary of State under the new administration. I've known Henry Kissinger for a great many years. I knew him before he came with the Nixon administration. Has made one of the greatest personal sacrifices under the new administration. I've known Henry Kissinger for has made one of the greatest personal sacrifices for the country and one of the finest personal 
decisions on behalf of all of us as Americans by his decision to resign as President of the United States. It's been my opportunity to watch over a period of nearly 25 years a foreign policy in the last five years that has been most successful in the achievement of peace for all of us here and hopefully the rest of the world. It's been a policy that I think can continue peace in the months and years ahead. Let me say without any hesitation or reservation that the policy that has achieved peace and built the blocks for future peace will be continued as far as I'm concerned as President of the United States. We've been fortunate uh, in the last five years to have uh, a very great uh, man in Henry Kissinger who has helped to build the blocks of peace under President Nixon. I think those policies should be continued. And those policies of peace will be continued. I have asked uh, Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State to stay on and to be the Secretary of State under the new administration. I've known Henry Kissinger for a great many years. I knew him before he came with the Nixon administration. I want him to be my Secretary of State and I'm glad to announce that he will be the Secretary of State. Which which means that he and I will be working together in the pursuit of peace in the future as we have achieved it in the past. We have many other problems. We have problems at home which must be resolved. And they can be resolved and will be resolved by the cooperation of the Congress with the president and those that work with him. I've been very fortunate in my lifetime in public office to have uh, a good many adversaries in the political arena in the Congress. But I don't think I have a single enemy in the Congress. And the net result is that I think tomorrow I can start out working with Democrats and with Republicans in the House as well as in the Senate to work on the problems, serious ones, which we have at home. And the spirit of cooperation, which I believe will be exhibited with the Congress and the new president, on the problems overseas and the problems at home will be beneficial not only to 
211 fine million Americans, but to the world as a whole. And I pledge to you tonight, as I will pledge tomorrow and in the future, my best efforts in cooperation, leadership, and dedication to what's good for America and good for the world. Thank you very much. The next day at the White House, President Nixon spoke to his supporters and staff. I just met with the members of the White House staff, you know, those that serve here in the White House, day in and day out. And I asked them to do what I ask all of you to do to the extent that you can and are, of course, are requested to do so, to serve our next president as you have served me and previous presidents, because many of you have been here for many years with devotion and dedication. Because uh, this office, great as it is, can only be as great as the men and women who work for and with the president. This house, for example, I was thinking of it as we walked down this hall And I was comparing it to some of the great houses of the world that I've been in. This isn't the biggest house. Many are and most. And even smaller countries are much bigger. This isn't the finest house. Many in Europe, particularly in China, Asia, have paintings of great, great value, things that we just don't have here and probably will never have until we are a thousand years old or older. But this is the best house. It's the best house because it has something far more important than numbers of people who serve, far more important than numbers of rooms or how big it is, far more important than numbers of magnificent pieces of art. This house has a great heart. And that heart comes from those who serve. I was rather sorry they didn't come down. We said goodbye to them upstairs. But they're really great. And I recall after so many times I've made speeches, and some of them pretty tough, you'd always come back or after a hard day, and my days usually have run rather long, I'd always get a lift from them, because I might be a little down, but they always smiled. And so it is with you. I look around here and I see so many in this staff that, you know, I should have been by your offices and shaken hands and I'd love to have talked to you and found out how to run the world. (laughs) Everybody wants to tell the president what to do. And uh, boy, he needs to be told many times, but I just haven't had the time. But I want to know, I want you to know that each and every one of you, I know, is indispensable to this government. I'm proud of this cabinet. I'm proud of our 
all the members who have served in our cabinet. I'm proud of our sub-cabinet. I'm proud of our White House staff. As I find out last night, uh, sure we've done some things wrong in this administration. And the top man always takes the responsibility and I've never ducked it. But I want to say one thing. administration and left it with more of this world's goods than when he came in. No man or no woman ever profited at the public expense or the public till. That tells something about you. Mistakes, yes, but for personal gain, never. You did what you believed in, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. And I only wish that I were a, a wealthy man. <laughs> Present time, I've uh, got to find a way to pay my taxes. <laughs> and if I were, I'd like to recompense you for the sacrifices that all of you have made to serve in government. You are getting something in government. And I want you to tell this to your children. And I hope the nation's children will hear, hear it too. Something in government service that is far more important than money. It's a cause bigger than yourself. It's the cause of making this the greatest nation in the world, the leader of the world. Because without our leadership, the world will know nothing but war, possibly starvation, or worse, in the years ahead. That afternoon, the president and first lady left the White House and flew back home to California. Minutes after being inaugurated, now President Ford addressed the nation. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. But there is a higher power. By whatever name, we honor him, who ordains not only righteousness but love, not only justice but mercy. As we bind up the internal wounds of Watergate, more painful and more poisonous than those of foreign wars, let us restore the golden rule to our political process and let brotherly love purge our hearts of suspicion and of hate. In the beginning, I asked you to pray for me. Before closing, I ask again your prayers for Richard Nixon, and for his family. May our former president, who brought peace to millions, find it for himself. May God bless and comfort his wonderful wife and daughters whose love and loyalty 
will forever be a shining legacy to all who bear the lonely burdens of the White House. A month later, the president issued a controversial executive action. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we as a great and good nation can do together to make his goal of peace come true. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. Richard Nixon never again held public office, but he was active in retirement. He wrote 10 books, including a best-selling White House memoir. He also made several trips overseas and cultivated an image of an elder statesman and leading expert on foreign affairs. On April 18, 1994, he suffered a debilitating stroke. He died four days later at age 81. The Nixon tapes are a unique presidential record, a rare backstage pass to White House power politics. Our thanks to nixontapes.org, the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, and the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. And in Season 1 of Presidential Recordings, hear secretly recorded conversations President Lyndon Johnson made on topics including the Warren Commission, the Vietnam War, the March on Selma, and more. And remember to follow Presidential Recordings so you never miss an episode.